The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to a special episode of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are talking about the penultimate Avengers film, Avengers Infinity War. That's right, folks, 10 years Marvel has been building towards this event, and good God, I'm almost at a loss for words for this because of how blown away I am by this film. That's not to say that this film is entirely perfect, but I'll be honest, I saw it last night, I've been waiting about 24 hours to talk to someone about it, and you guys are basically the first ones who are going to get to hear what I have to think about it. I really have not had the chance to talk with anyone else who has seen the film. I went to a late showing last night, I would have recorded this, except for the fact that I had to be up for work four hours later, and quite honestly, I four hours is about the minimum amount of sleep I'm going to function on in order to perform my job adequately, so unfortunately we had to wait until this evening to record this podcast. Podcast, but I am very excited about getting to talk about this, and it is a great, great, great movie. Overall, I think that this film hits on just about everything I would want to see from a film like this. It's Again, it's not perfect. There are some parts that I didn't care for as much, and certain things were done maybe in a way that wasn't the way I would have thought to do them, but I also loved the fact that this film wasn't entirely predictable for me. As good as Black Panther was, it was super, super predictable because it followed the Marvel formula to a T. It was just probably, in my opinion, the second most perfect example of the Marvel formula. For me, it would would definitely fall in after Winter Soldier because I think Winter Soldier is a little bit stronger. And in general, honestly, I think that's probably one of my favorite Marvel films. It's up there with the original Avengers and, and now Infinity War. But that aside, I was really impressed by how well the film was able to balance everything that was going on because there was so much going on in this movie. And in addition to that... I was impressed by the fact that the film was able to surprise me at various times. You know, there were times where things were very predictable, but there were choices that were made or that could have been made that either were or weren't at the appropriate times, enough so that the film was kind of, I don't want to say unpredictable, but I didn't, it didn't telegraph its punches, if you know what I mean. So I'm going to go ahead and jump just right into the film here and kind of talk talk about the plot and talk about kind of how that went. And then I'll probably go ahead and get into some standout performances and even talk a little bit about the audience reaction as I saw it. So as I was just saying about the film not necessarily telegraphing its punches or the fact that the film did things that I think it should have done but wasn't necessarily convinced that Marvel was going to do, the first one that comes to mind is the opening scene on the Asgardian refugee ship where Loki turns over the Tesseract to Thanos and in the end is basically is killed for it. So to start with, I mean, I like the fact that they picked up basically right from the end of Thor Ragnarok and I had been kind of hoping that that's how they were going to start this film, but I wasn't really 100% convinced that that's what they were going to do. So that part was nice. On top of that... I think that just jumping right into what is basically a a scene of utter carnage really helps set the tone for the rest of the film and for Thanos as a primary villain, right? He's always been kind of hanging out in the background as a secondary villain to motivate the Avengers and 
kind of drive the overarching Marvel Cinematic Universe arc forward. But in the long run, Thanos really hasn't done much. So at this point, introducing him as a serious villain in this manner really, I mean, sets the tone properly and makes you realize that we're operating on a different level here than we've been operating at previously. Specifically, as I'm talking about the Russo brothers making decisions that I didn't think they were going to make, to me, it always made sense, especially once Loki gave Thanos the Tesseract, that Loki shouldn't live. And I know there's a lot of fans out there who are big Tom Hiddleston fans. I don't necessarily personally understand that as much, but, you know, to each their own. At the same time, though, in the the story, it just makes so much sense for Thanos to kill Loki, especially with their history together, how much Loki told off Thanos in the original Avengers and the fact that Loki failed so miserably in his task. That right there really told me that if Loki survives this encounter, I'm going to have a hard time buying the rest of the film because if Thanos is either unwilling or incompetent and fails to deal with Loki and his failure, then I have a hard time believing him as the super bad villain that he is supposed to be. Not only does Thanos kill Loki, he strangles him with his own hands, right? He doesn't use a weapon, he doesn't use any kind of powers or beam energy, anything like that. No, he reaches out and in a very personal manner chokes the life out of Loki while looking at him, while looking him in the eye. You know, that it's a very personal thing and it is a very powerful thing that happened there, right? Thanos is finally a man who is doing things himself. And that's kind of a reoccurring theme throughout the movie, is that Thanos talks about being a person of incredible enough will to do what he feels must be done, no matter what else anyone thinks. In this case, Thanos's goal is to annihilate half the world, half of the universe, excuse me, population, in order to provide a better life for everyone else. In the comics, Thanos is doing it because he's in love with death, and death is unhappy because of the universal imbalance, that there are more people living now than have died throughout the entirety of history, which works just fine in the comics, but in a more realistic setting like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that's a little bit much. But in this universe, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the idea of overpopulation and dealing with starvation and deprivation, things like that. You know, in in a lot of ways, those are the same kinds of things that the Avengers are fighting against. Only Thanos' approach to doing this is so radical and so unorthodox and unconventional and quite honestly so just out there and crazy that it makes him a villain. But he's not doing it for villainous reasons. He's trying to look out for as many people as he can. I I think a good way to look at that is the, the Star Trek mantra, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Now, in this case, the needs of half the population out surviving and, and thriving to Thanos outweigh the needs of the other half of the population. But mass genocide is horrific, horrendous. It's 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 an unconscionable crime. Again, it's that idea of the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Thanos means well. He wants to do things to better the conditions for everyone. But the reality is he is committing mass genocide and he's now looking for the Infinity Stones to do so. Now, you know, once once we get past that opening sequence, the film really kind of picks up for a little bit where you have the various groups of Avengers fighting off different members of Thanos' Black Order. And that's a lot of fun. I think the interplay between Iron Man and Spider-Man and Doctor Strange is kind of interesting, especially because of how much Doctor Strange and Tony Stark get compared in this Marvel Universe. 
course, the fact that they really don't like each other kind of appeals to me. When you get two people who are that close together, either they are instant friends or they hate each other's rotten guts. And that's where Doctor Strange and Tony Stark are, especially to start this film. The other thing there is that obviously both of them are utterly convinced of their mental superiority. So that plays into things a lot too. About the time we start introducing the Guardians of the Galaxy, whom in general I really enjoy, I think the film starts getting a little bit bogged down. Because at that point, we have just introduced a massive amount of characters. Now admittedly, I think it is entirely appropriate that we kill off some of these characters. Again, Tom Hiddleston's Loki gets killed, Heimdall gets killed, and while I like Idris Elba, to be fair, Heimdall really hasn't done much since the first Thor film. So, you know, I have a hard time really, like, feeling all that sad about the death of Heimdall. Uh, now, obviously is a driving force for Thor's story, but at the same time, you know, it doesn't really hold a lot of weight for me, so. But again, as the Guardians of the Galaxy get introduced and they pick up Thor, it does kind of feel like their story starts to kind of bog the movie down a little bit in terms of the fact that we're having to keep track of a lot of various threads of the film. You know, you're keeping track of what's going on with Thanos, you're keeping track of the Guardians, eventually the Guardians split up, so then you're keeping track of the Guardians with Star-Lord and then... Rocket, Groot, and Thor. You're keeping track of Iron Man, Doctor Strange, and Spider-Man. You're keeping track of kind of the rest of the Avengers, especially Vision and Wanda, and then kind of Captain America's new Avengers, or secret Avengers really is kind of a, a more appropriate uh, modern term for them. Now, again, I think the film does a pretty good job of balancing these, right? No one story seems to be particularly heavy compared to the others. At the same time, though, it is a lot to keep track of, and I think that's probably the film's biggest weakness. Also, I think the fact that Thanos is able to get a large number of the stones without a whole lot of effort. It really takes almost no effort for him to get the first three stones at all. In fact, the first stone, we don't even see him get. It's completely off screen before the film even starts. The Tesseract comes really easily, and then the Aether also comes really easily, as he is able to take that from the Collector. I do like the fact that we went back to Nowhere, because I think that's just a really fun location. It's a lot more fun in the comics than it is in the, in the film universe, but it's still fun no matter what. But, you know, that part of the film was kind of interesting. Obviously, we got the allusion to Gamora knowing where the Soul Stone is at that point, but... But I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of a fight for some of the Infinity Stones here early on. Now, once we get to the Soul Stone, I think that's really one of the cruxes of this film. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But the Time Stone, you know, there's a, there's a good fight for that one. And there's a pretty good fight for the uh, mind, mind Gem. Now, I say pretty good because I don't necessarily consider the entire Wakandan fight for the Mind Gem. Really, the way I, I'm, I look at it is kind of Thanos at the end there when he's just throwing the Avengers aside. So getting getting back to the, the Soul Stone, because obviously this is one of the most important parts of the film, and I think it's one of the parts that has the most resonance, is... First off, the fact that Gamora knows where it is. So the entire Marvel Universe has been wondering where the hell this last stone is. Gamora knows. Thanos captures her, and before all this goes down, Gamora makes... Star-Lord promised to kill her if Thanos tries to capture her. And Quill tries to. I mean, it, it takes a lot for him to get there, right? Gamora really has to push him. And, and even Thanos kind of taunts him and, and pushes him towards it. But Thanos knows full well that because of the level of control he has with the three stones he already has, that it's not going to work out for Quill, that he's not going to be able to kill Gamora. Thanos basically just turns his gun to bubbles. So there's the relationship between Quill and Gamora, where Quill is very much torn by his his feelings for Gamora and by the promise that he made. And in fact, he swore on his mother. And to him, as we've learned, his mother really is the most sacred thing 
in Quill's universe. And as much as it pains him to do so, as much as it, it rips him apart, he made that promise and he swore on his mother that he would do it. And he at least attempts to make good on that promise before Thanos subverts it. Now, once Gamora actually shows Thanos where the stone is, we get, I think, probably the best reveal of the entire film. And that is the Red Skull guarding the Soul Stone. Oh my God, that was such an unexpected moment and so cool. And I love the fact that the Red Skull basically explains that I too was looking for the stones and basically as a result they imprinted on me and when one you know Captain America basically killed the Red Skull this is what happened to him that he was forced to guide people to the Soul Stone but never be able to wield it himself that even just trying to search for the stones that this desire to do so takes this level of toll on an individual really says a lot for a what is going on like the, the the stakes involved here but also how much Thanos believes in what he's doing and we see that even more a few moments later when it's re it's revealed that Thanos has to sacrifice the thing he loves most and that he sacrifices Gamora that he throws her off the cliff in order to gain the soul stone to start with the fact that Thanos feels so strongly for Gamora that paternal love even still, after everything she has done, after the betrayals and the subversion and the explicitly stated hatred that Gamora feels toward him, she is still the most important thing in his life outside of this mission. Now, obviously, the mission is more important because he is willing to sacrifice Gamora. But at the same time, it really is impressive how much he cares about Gamora. It is far more than I thought he, he would. And it brings so much nuance to the character, right? In in the original Infinity Gauntlet, Thanos really isn't what I would call an overly nuanced character. He's very single-minded, which is fine. And there's a little bit of character depth because, like I said, everything he's doing, he's doing for death. And so he's constantly tormented by the unrequited feelings towards death. However, it doesn't really provide that much character depth, right? He's still very narrowly defined within the, I want the stones so I can make death happy. In this, you know, Thanos is still very driven towards his goal, but we see his interactions with uh, child Gamora. And as he goes and as he just talks about, as he talks about what he's doing and why he's doing these things, it becomes clear that Thanos doesn't necessarily think of himself in terms of being a good person, right? It's it's kind of the Batman idea of living long enough to see yourself become the villain. Or in Firefly, I should say in Serenity, the parliamentary agent's uh, stance that I'm a monster and I won't get to live in this world that I've created, this perfect world. Right? All Thanos wants to do is to fix the universe the way he thinks it needs to be fixed, and then sit and watch a sunrise. Right In the end, Thanos has no goals of ruling the universe. He is trying to protect it, and in order for him to do so, he has to do unbelievably terrible things. And that includes things that are unbelievably and terribly painful to himself. He's not just asking other people to sacrifice. He is giving up that which means the most in the entire universe to him in order to see this through. And in this case, it's Gamora. And I will be honest, it was heart-wrenching, especially once you realized what was going on. Because anyone who's kind of paying attention to how that story arc is developing, you realize probably a minute or so before Gamora does that this is what's going to happen. And then you have to watch her realize it. You have to watch her understand that Thanos isn't playing and that she has really seconds to come to terms with the idea that that this man that she hates and this man who is doing terrible things still cares for her like a father 
and that even though he is willing to do this to move his uh, campaign forward, I guess is how to call it, that it is still going to absolutely destroy him on the inside. And what's interesting is not only do we see that, but soon thereafter, when Thanos returns to Titan in order to get the Time Stone from the Eye of Agamotto, when Mantis kind of puts him in like a trance or kind of just kind of takes control of him. She talks about how much pain he's in and the fact that it's because he had to do this terrible thing to Gamora whom he cares about deeply. You know, again, I'm a, I'm a parent and I could not possibly imagine the idea of sacrificing my son in order to move something like this forward. I mean, obviously I have no plans on universal genocide. That's a, a little ambitious for me, I think. But the idea of being able and willing, no matter how much it hurt me, but, but still being willing to to sacrifice on that scale, I, I can't do it. I could never do it. There is nothing I believe in so much that I would be willing to do that. So I think the dynamic between Iron Man, Spider-Man, and Doctor Strange is interesting. When they add in the Star-Lord half of the Guardians of the Galaxy, it becomes a little bit too goofy at times for me. The fight between Thanos and that group is one of the best, if not the best. I'm still debating between that one and the Wakanda battle in the film. I mean, both are just superb. I think the heroes fighting the, the nameless army, that kind of wins out on me. I think just because I like the characters more, I like Captain America, I like Black Panther, I like Black Widow a little bit more than I like Iron Man and Spider-Man. That's personal taste. I do really enjoy Doctor Strange in the Marvel Cinematic Universe though so but at any rate I think that fight's really interesting because Doctor Strange takes that time to look into the future to use the Eye of Agamotto and to play out every possible future that he can. 14.5 million, and there is only one in which the Avengers succeed in defeating Thanos. <clears throat> and they get so very close in this this one. And unfortunately, it's Star-Lord that screws it up. So I get why Star-Lord did what he did, and I get why he screwed things up the way he did. At the same time, it's a little frustrating. You know, they have this chance to take out Thanos, and based on the conversation with Doctor Strange, they know they literally have one chance Chance in 14 and a half million. So everything has to go perfectly in order for this to work. And again, this really comes down to the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Star-Lord should know that the pers his personal needs out are outweighed by the fact that the entire universe rests in his hands here. And as selfless as he has been in other films, right? He reaches out, he grabs the Power Stone to, to stop Ronan from destroying Xandar. Like, he does selfless things to then go and do something like this. It doesn't really work for me. Now, in the end, I do really like the fact that Doctor Strange gives Thanos the Eye of Agamotto, the, the Time Stone, because Doctor Strange has realized that, like, as he said, we're now in the end game. We have lost. The question now is how to lose as best we can with the smallest losses, right? There is a chance that more people can be spared if they play their cards right, because they're going to lose. They have a losing hand and they know it. And now the best way is to not lose badly, is to, to minimize the loss. So the group I haven't talked about so far is Captain America and his Secret Avengers, which is a group in general I really like. And I like the fact that they're partially accepted back into the fold. You know, Thunderbolt Ross is still Thunderbolt Ross and he's still a tool, so there's nothing that can be done about that. And they kind of address that, like recognize it as a thing, 
and then just blow him off and move past, which I liked. Because if we were just super focused on we need to arrest the renegade Avengers, then that would really hurt the story. That having been said, you know, unfortunately, I I was looking forward to the Cap and Iron Man meeting. I I don't want to call it a reunion because, you know, I I think reunion has a more positive connotation that this meeting would have had. But I think it would have been that, that first step, which, again, would have been interesting. You know, Iron Man has that phone. I was really looking forward to seeing him actually using that phone. And then, unfortunately, Unfortunately, it was was Banner who used it. Let me tell you, Banner throughout this whole thing is really interesting because of the fight between he and Hulk. You know, before now, and really in Thor Ragnarok, Hulk was kind of the the bigger focus. Whereas after Thanos just beats the tar out of Hulk in the opening scenes, Hulk doesn't want to come out and play. Hulk is done. And so when the Avengers need him most, Hulk is unwilling to be a part of things. And it's interesting because that's kind of a theme that we get from the early comics, too. Right? That's part of the reason Hulk leaves the team is because he decides that the Avengers don't want him to be a part of the team. Now, in Hulk's defense in the original Avengers, that's absolutely true. They want him on the team so they can keep an eye on him, not because they think he's going to be a valuable team member. In this case, you know, everybody really kind of likes Banner. So that's really not the issue, but Hulk has decided that because people don't want him and people think of him as a monster, then he doesn't want to be around and he doesn't want to participate. He doesn't have a dog in this fight, so to speak. And quite honestly, he's the Hulk and he just got his ass kicked. So, you know, that one's tough for Hulk. I was a little bit disappointed by the interaction that we didn't get more between Black Widow and Hulk and Banner. I was really looking forward to kind of a rekindling of things there. Obviously not right away. Like there has to be that awkward scene. But I also think, especially with Banner just having kind of gotten out of the Hulk, you know, he was Hulk for over a year and a half at that point. I think it was really kind of something that should have been explored because I think Banner would still have those feelings because he really hasn't had a chance to to deal with them, to work them out. So I would have liked to have seen that been addressed, uh, which it wasn't. But, you know, there's a, there's another film coming, so hopefully we'll get a chance to address it then. So when it comes to the Wakanda battle scene and, and really the Wakanda portions in general. I really enjoy them. I would have liked a little bit more of the Black Panther characters that we've come to see recently. I was really glad we got as much of uh, Shauri as we did because I really enjoy Black Panther's sister. I think the character is really entertaining and fun to see a, a really brainy, fun-loving female character like that. Again, I, in general, I would have liked to see more Black Panther. I loved Bucky in this because, you know, even though he has tried to distance himself from his past life, when push comes to shove, Bucky is a soldier at heart and he takes orders and he steps up and he does his duty so you know a lot of credit there to Buck and you know obviously it didn't work out great for him because he was one of the 50% but that fight was absolutely spectacular especially at the end when Thor shows up with his brand new hammer Stormbreaker one I was super excited that it's Stormbreaker because big fan of Beta Ray Bill here but also you know that, that was a, that was a fun part of the storyline as much as I didn't care for the other Guardians of the Galaxy stuff Thor and well, I mean, Peter Dinklage, like a giant dwarf Peter Dinklage. It was very awkward, like not in a bad way, right? But, you know, it's Peter Dinklage. He's literally a dwarf. He's playing a dwarf, like dwarf race person, but he's huge, but he's still Peter Dinklage build. Very weird, slightly mentally jarring, but in a good way. But it was Thor's quest to get this new hammer built and Thor's willingness to sacrifice in order to get this hammer. The risk that Thor is willing to take in order to try and defeat Thanos is really spectacular it's really great but you know Thor shows up with his brand new hammer and just starts beating people down now I was a little disappointed at how kind of OP Thor seemed you know he was 
really, really powerful. So the rest of the Avengers are doing a, a decent job of fighting off this alien horde. And, you know, they're getting overrun, overwhelmed. And then Thor comes in and totally turns the tide. Like one person is going to make that much of a difference. Even if they're the God of Thunder, it's still a little bit of a deus ex machina. He's a little bit too powerful and comes in at just the right moment in order to save everything. But in general, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed Thor trying to deal with everything he's lost because, I mean, Thor has lost so much in the last couple of films. He lost his mother, he's lost all the rest of his family, his home, his friends. I mean, Thor really is lacking in kind of any place in the universe, so he's trying to grasp at straws here, and the, the only straw that he's got anywhere near his hand is, I'm gonna take out Thanos, and I need this new super awesome weapon. Now, of course, in the end, Thanos shows up, and although Wanda destroys the, the Mind Stone, you know, Thanos has the time stone. He winds time back, which unfortunately was super, super, super predictable if you have any concept of the comics. And he takes the mind stone and completes the gauntlet, at which point he is, you know, invincible. Thor very nearly kills Thanos with Stormbreaker, but in the end, Thanos just snaps his fingers, falls back through space, and half of the universe's population ceases to exist. And watching all these characters, especially all these heroes, vanish is tough in general, especially, you know, you've got Bucky kind of disappearing right in front of Cap, Groot disappearing in front of Rocket, who has already lost to Groot once before. Um, that was tough. And obviously, the most difficult one, very much on purpose, is Iron Man and Spider-Man because of the relationship that we established in Spider-Man Homecoming, right? That that kind of oddly paternal figure that Tony Stark is playing for Peter Parker, which works in the movie, don't get me wrong, but they really play it up, especially in this scene, where it takes Peter Parker a lot longer to dissolve than pretty much any other hero, and it seems to cause him significantly more physical pain. You know, you very much get that, I don't want to die, please do something to save me, don't let me die, I just want to go home kind of thing from Peter, which on an emotional level is absolutely heartbreaking because you know how Tony feels about the kid even though he doesn't want to admit it whereas on a logical level you go well this doesn't quite fit because nobody else died or felt like this or ceased to exist I should say they don't even, didn't even really die so they definitely played it up for that emotional sake the other issue here is that you know pl and pl they played it up emotionally yes but it also f fits into that whole vision that Iron Man had at the beginning of Age of Ultron with all the Avengers lying basically dead because of him Right, and it's one of those. His goal has been to save his friends, to save the Avengers, and here he is. He's watched all the other people around him dissolve. He's literally the last one left on Titan with Peter Parker, with Spider-Man, and he basically has to hold Peter in his arms while Peter ceases to exist, while Peter dies. And it is everything that Tony fought to prevent, and any, everything he feared would happen coming true. And you just kind of break. You know, I, I mentioned that I was going to talk about you know theater response. And, you know, one of the big responses that we got was when Captain America stepped out of the shadows the first time. You could have heard a pin drop in this theater as people watched these heroes cease to exist. It was unbelievable. I, I don't know that I've ever sat in a theater that is more silent. And I think one of the best touches is that in the end, one of the last scenes we see is Thanos still very much hurting from Thor's blow and from the overwhelming power that he has right now, right? He's having a hard time even dealing with it, coping with it. But it's Thanos sitting down and watching the sunrise because in Thanos's mind, he has done good work and he has earned his respite. And that's where the film ends. And it is such an amazing place for them to end the film. Like, yeah, the film gets a little bit bogged down in, in too many people 
kill too many characters, even though they go ahead and they, they do, in fact, kill off several. But I don't know of a better spot they could have picked to end the film. One, because it so closely mirrors the comic, kind of in its simple beauty and in, 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 in its means of ending it, right? The original Infinity Gauntlet ends with Thanos sitting on a farm, you know, peace at at peace with his, his existence, at peace with the universe. Here, you know, it, it just, one, it leaves the universe hanging, right? There is no closure here. So the audience leaves with this gaping wound kind of in their psyche. And, I mean, everyone's going to show up for the next film. Like, you, you have to. But, but aside from that perspective, you know, making people come out and buy the tickets and go see the movie, like, I, I have to know what happens next. There's now a part of me that is incomplete because I don't know how this gets resolved because, I mean, there is there is just no resolution here at all and again I think that was brilliantly done now of course there's the post credit scene uh, which is two of my favorite characters who we don't see enough anymore is Nick Fury and Maria Hill both of whom unfortunately get dissolved but, in f- but before that happens and while we get to see the chaos going around on earth as half the population disappears Nick Fury sends off r- r- honest to god what looks like a freaking page like an, on a pager sends off a message and the response basically implies the coming of Captain Marvel so obviously next year we are going to get the Captain Marvel, the Carol Danvers film, which I'm super looking forward to. I think Brie Larson is going to be great and I'm looking forward to seeing that character on screen. But more than that, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of even further widening the Marvel Universe in the face of this unbearable threat that is Thanos. So again, overall, this is an absolutely amazing film. Like I said, I have literally been waiting all day to talk about this with someone. So I'm talking about it with you guys, which is a lot of fun. And you guys are going to have to forgive me a little bit. I'm going to do some minor edits to this podcast but for the most part this is going up about, about as raw as I'm willing to put up a, a some assembly required podcast so it gets out there and, and I can get this out of my head because you know my wife hasn't seen it yet we're gonna go see it tomorrow but I mean I just I walked out of there and went oh my god like 10 years in the making and it was worth every moment of it absolutely again it's not a perfect film but I don't I don't need a perfect film I need the right film I need the film that begins to wrap up the last 10 years of the Marvel Universe and gets it right and this film absolutely delivers on what I needed out of it I'm, I'm super excited to go see it again tomorrow uh, there may be more viewings at some point I would love to go see it like a lot of times in the theater again unfortunately having the kid uh, cuts back on my movie going experiences some you know I wouldn't trade the kid for the world like I said before but you know there are some some uh, exchanges there, if you will, and I don't get to the movies as much as I used to. So, but but two showings definitely uh, worthwhile, and you know I'm I'm so excited to see what they do to finally bring the first three phases of, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, to to a close and to to wrap up this story because uh, I have no idea where the hell they're going to take it from here. Absolutely not. I can't even fathom how they're going to try and and bring a conclusion about to this two part film. But they're going to, and they're going. I mean, I've got a lot of confidence in them right now. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. One final word before I close out this episode, and that is I will be presenting a panel at Tidewater Comic Con in Virginia Beach at the Virginia Beach Convention Center on May 12th at noon. Uh, very excited. I'm still working out a few of the details as to what we're going to be doing, but we'll be doing a live podcast 
podcast episode, and we're definitely going to be talking about Avengers origin stories. I figured with, you know, as with us coming to the end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe as we know it right now, I thought it would be kind of fun to look back at some of the Avengers beginnings and, and kind of talk about that. So, uh, not 100% flushed out. Uh, I do realize I am out ticking clock, and I'm attempting to move houses in this t- same time period, so it's going to be a fun little rush here, but uh, I am very excited to be a part of this and have this opportunity again. Next week, or I really, I should say later this week, we are going to be taking a look at our first appearance of The Vision uh, in a podcast that I actually recorded before this one and will be coming out after this one just because, again, of moving and things like that. But we are going to be getting back on track over the next few weeks. Again, it may take us a few weeks with the move and my work schedule to get back into things, but I am more dedicated than ever to bringing you everything I can about The Avengers. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.